right, welcome again, everyone, to Impact. We're glad you're hanging out with us today. Um, we're excited for what's coming up. And there's nothing we're actually really excited about that one, as you guys know. Um, we planted Impact Church September 16th of last year. So that means coming up is our one-year anniversary. So um, we're really excited about that. We're really excited to celebrate that. And we're going to celebrate it in a bunch of ways. We're going to do a pretty fun event. Um, we're also going to have a donut ball here. So you just think, what is a donut ball? It's, it's a wall that's filled with donuts. Okay? So you're not going to miss that. September 15th, make sure you're here. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to celebrate what God has been doing um, through this church over the past year. I can't believe it's already been a year because we just launched uh, a little while ago. September 15th, put that on your calendar. It's going to be a lot of fun. You don't want to miss that service. So um, we are finishing out our series, Grill. Hope you guys have enjoyed this series. Um, the last week we talked about some of the questions people asked that um, were more about how you follow Jesus a little closer. The week before that, we talked about some of the questions people asked regarding the church. And today is just going to be random questions that I'm answering. Um, we got 40 to 50 questions, so there's no possible way to answer all these questions. Um, so any question that you may have submitted that I have not answered yet, I don't answer them today. This week we're going to release a blog where I will answer every single one of them. Okay? Um, so we just had so many questions. I'm so thankful for all of you guys for sending those questions. I hope you've been enjoying the series. I've been enjoying uh, having to figure out the answers to some of these great questions. So um, let's get right to it, shall we? You guys ready to close out the real series? Yeah? Come on, let's do it. All right. All right. First question is this. Is all sin equal? And I like that. That's a good question. Um, I used to always believe and think that all sin was equal. Um, but... In high school, I remember thinking about this question and in my head being like, so does that mean when if I like steal something or if I tell a little white lie compared to a serial killer, God cannot see the difference? Like, because we can logically see differences between like major things, right? But so I was thinking, well, if all, if all sin has to be equal, then if all sin is equal, that means God cannot see the difference between that. He says, sees that, that it's a sin, whatever. Um, and here's what I've learned. Um, scripture does not say that all sin is equal. Um, scripture says that all sin condemns you equally. There's a difference, okay? So whether you sin once, you sin a million times, you still need a savior. All sin con condemns us the same way. But God does not say all sin is equal. It is not. In fact, um, here's an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, James, when Paul writes, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So even in even what Paul writes is that sexual sin is a completely different kind of sin. So is all sin equal? Uh, it all condemns us the same as if we all need a savior because of sin. But God doesn't see it the same way. I also think that we should not be so focused on what's a greater sin or not. You know what I mean? I think sometimes we do that, but like, well, at least I'm not as bad as that sin. It's like that's just dumb for us to do. We should be focusing on us and not be throwing so the bigger now. What sin we need to work on. But um, scripture doesn't say that all sin is equal. It, it condemns us the same, but it's not all the same. So next question. Okay. What is your wife's least favorite thing about you? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> no, that answer is her least favorite thing. That's not. Um, I actually, when I got this question, I asked her the answer, and she quickly gave it to me. Here's her answer. Her answer was, um, this is something that, that my, I do, my brothers, my sister, my family, we kind of do this a lot. Um, when I find a joke that works, or a story that's funny, I tell everybody. Constantly. So if you're my wife, 
who's around me a lot, you will hear the same story 10, 15, 20 times. So I know it's going to get a reaction, it's going to be funny, they're going to laugh. But if you've heard it that many times, it drives her nuts after a while. So I'm like, oh, here's the story. So what she likes to do is ruin the punchline for me so I can't get to it. She does that all the time. Um, she goes, oh, this story with this punchline? I'm like, okay. And then the person goes, well, you can still tell it. I'm like, no, I'm not telling it. And I'm all, ruin So that would be probably really good. Our family kind of does that a little bit. We like to say the same thing, same jokes, same things. All right, that's good one. Next question. Can you elaborate on impact stance on female pastoral staff and leadership? I was hoping to get this question. I almost submitted it myself this all answer. But someone said it to me. So I was hoping to get this question because this is a question that, that we should you should know how our stance is on this because um, in church denominations and in different churches, there's completely different stances on what women can do and can't do in church. So I'll give you our answer fully up front, and then I'll explain why. Explain why and why we have it this way. Um, we fully believe and authorize and empower women to be pastors, to teach, and to lead. We fully do. Um, Michelle, I, I'm a pastor, um, and our only other pastor on staff is Michelle. She's also a pastor. Um, so we fully believe and we fully encourage females to become pastors because we believe it's important for the church, it's important for our faith. Uh, we're part of the Church of Nazareth denomination. Um, you may not know that. Um, church of Nazareth denomination started in 1906, and since from day one, they were fully on board when it came to uh, female pastors. A lot of denominations are not. A lot of denominations are not. They're starting to come around to it um, a little late, if you ask us, but they're starting to come around to it a little bit. Um, and I'm going to explain to you why, because we can't just say that and not have some kind of evidence. And there are some major passages in Scripture that make it seem pretty clear that females should not be pastors. So we need to talk about that if we're just going to make a big stance like that. So there's two main ones, there's more, but there's two main ones that always get brought up to me when, I, when we bring this up. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 1 Timothy 2. So let's go through both of them. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 14 first. Um, here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24 and 35. Women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Pretty rough verse, right? There's a lot to unpack on that one. So let me just let me kind of unpack this for you what, what I believe, and, and you can find people that disagree with what I'm going to say, but from my research, from what we've looked up, this is what we've come to the conclusion that the church nomination has. Um, you have to understand the culture that everything is written in. It's very important. Whenever you read passages in the Bible, you have to understand um, who it's written to, the, the author, the audience, the culture surrounding you. All that is, is crucial for us to understand what we're talking about. So here, First Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. It's a very divisive city. It's a, it's a city that um, has a bad background. And remember, we're in a culture where women are treated terribly. Like women aren't barely anything. There is their only job really is to give birth to a man. That's their only job in this culture. So this is the culture that we're talking about here. In fact, in this church in particular, um, men and women weren't even allowed to sit on the same sides as each other. Men would sit here, women would sit on the other side. They weren't allowed to sit on the same sides. That's how the culture had that, that was important. So in this context, this is what Paul is saying. So what would happen, um, according to scholars, is that women would be on this side and they would have questions because remember, women were not allowed to be educated. Women were not allowed to do a lot of things, so they didn't understand a lot of stuff in that culture. And they weren't even allowed to ask the question. 
They weren't even allowed to do that in this, in this context. So they would yell to their husband on the other side to then ask the question. Because again, they couldn't do it. They weren't allowed to speak. They weren't allowed to do anything. And the husband would then have to ask the question. So let me ask you a question. If while I was preaching, Erica constantly yelled over here for someone asking a question, that would be distracting, right? So in that context, Paul is saying women should remain silent in churches. And here's why I believe that. If you look at the same exact letter that Paul wrote, here's what he writes in 1 Corinthians 11, just three chapters prior. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4 through 5 says this. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors God. He's teaching men how to pray and prophesize. But every woman who prays and prophesies with their head uncovered dishonors God. We're not talking about the head covering or uncovering. Why would Paul instruct women on how to pray and prophesy in church, just letters written to the church, if they're not allowed to speak according to the first verse. Why would he do that? So again, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire on something, they should ask their own husband. So another thing that's written here is, as the law says. You see that part? What law is he referring to? You need to ask that question. What law says that they cannot speak? Because if you look at the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Hebrew law, there's no verses in there that say women can't speak. So he's not talking about that law. Maybe he's talking about the Roman law. This would be the first example in all of his letters in the New Testament that he never brings up the Roman law. But maybe that's what he's talking about. He's not really talking. What I believe he's saying there when it comes to the law is like the basic, as in the norm, what's happening. So that's what I believe. So I believe this verse does not say in our day and age now women are not allowed to preach. If it does, there's a lot of things that we are currently allowing that we shouldn't be allowing to. So let's go to the next verse. Skip ahead a little bit. Amen. First um, uh, Timothy, next one. First Timothy chapter two, verse. Can you go back? Uh, there you go. Okay. First Timothy chapter two, verse eleven and twelve. This is another verse we need to look at and understand. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. That seems pretty right on, right? That seems pretty pretty harsh. Again, this is Paul. Uh, he's writing a letter to Timothy, who's a pastor at a church. Again, we need to understand the context. He's writing to a church that's in Ephesus. That's where he's writing to. And this, and this church in Ephesus was full of false doctrine and hypocrisy and false teachers. Now, what used to happen in that culture is these false teachers would find women Specifically, women that had a lot of um, money because they were in a marriage, to marriage, and would use them to spread the gospel of this false teaching. That's what scholars would say that they, they would use women to spread this false narrative and spread this message. So Paul is addressing false teaching, and I know this because in First Timothy chapter one he talks about false teaching. So he's addressing false teaching in the very beginning of this letter. So to me, there is no evidence that this statement is a permanent statement. This was a statement for that time period. There's no evidence to me that it was meant to be permanent. And here's why. Um, the, the verb here, I cannot permit. Um, the Greek word for that is epitrepo. I think that's how you say it. I, I, I'm not 100% sure on that. But that's how Peter would say it. And that verb is a present tense verb. So what I believe, what a lot of scholars believe, is that that is not a verb to say for all time, this is how it should be. This, this is how it's meant to be. I believe that it was not meant to be a permanent command. So if it's a permanent command, then we should not be instructing that at all. And here's, here's another thing I, I, I'm asking, I ask myself. Why would Paul ask a woman to learn if she's never allowed to teach or assume authority anyways? 
Why, why learn anything? Be like, no, I don't think you any of something. You're never going to need to preach because you shouldn't be on preaching. I believe I did not do this as a permanent command. And now here's what I'm going to say, you know, we, and I could do a whole sermon on this. I know I'm really quickly going through this um, and do it quickly. Um, if I just had these verses, I could explain them away to you. But I had no verses supporting that I believe women can be pastors. Then it doesn't matter what I'm saying. Okay? If, if I could explain these verses away, but nothing else in Scripture points to that they're allowed to, then none of them matters. So, we need to see what Scripture and what verses do point to women being pastors. Here's a couple of them. Acts chapter 2, verse 17 through 18, says this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit with all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even one of my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Let's go to the next verse, Romans chapter 16, 1-3. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon, that's a church leader right there, a deacon of the church of Ketrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. All right. Great Priscilla and Aquila, again, two people with my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. Then there's so many other verses. I was give you a bunch more. First, we see Priscilla here and Aquila. They were um, they led a church in their homes in the city of Ephesus. That's what they did. Uh, we have Chloe in First Corinthians chapter one verse eleven. She was a member of Paul's church, and she, her her members of her church came to Paul with all these quarrels. That's why he answered these questions. That's Chloe. We have Nympha in Acts chapter sixteen. Um, in, and in the book of Colossians, I'm sorry, Nympha was in the book of Colossians, she was a lead pastor of her house church. We have Lydia in Acts chapter 16, who was also the lead pastor of her church. So, I believe that there's a lot of scripture that points to women in a day and age where they were not educated, in a day and age where no one treated women correctly. I believe that scripture and that Jesus specifically did more for women than anybody else in history and put them in positions to be leaders, even early on. That's why I fully believe, and I fully, I'm so, I'm so hard on this, but I really believe that we need women leaders. That we don't, and not just a women can be a pastor, but you have to be the children's pastor. I don't believe that. I believe women can be lead pastors. I believe women can lead churches. I believe they should help lead. Because we need women. Because they do things that not everyone does, right? We need to have women that know different perspectives that we cannot say only half of us can lead. So, if this question, I still don't feel like I answered it for you, if you feel that way, um, let's get coffee, and I'll talk to you about it, because I know this is hard, and most, most denominations do not agree with this stance, um, but we are very strong on that, and um, I think it's important for you to know that. So, if you have any other more questions about this, uh, I'd love to talk to you about it a little more, okay? So, I know I kind of did it really quick. Um, next question. Do miscarried babies grow up in heaven? Will they know I'm their mom? That's a hard question. Um, and since we did just talk about women leading, we have our, our female pastor, Michelle. Um, she works for students right to life. So um, there's no better person to answer this question. I'm going to let Michelle answer this question for us, and then um, we'll take it. If you plan the questions that way. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I absolutely love this question. And for a lot of you, you know what I do for a living. It's extremely meaningful to 
society in general, we need to do a better job talking about miscarriage and pregnancy loss for the benefit of women who go through that. Um, so I absolutely love uh, just an honor to be able to talk about this. I have several friends and family uh, who have been through miscarriage and pregnancy loss. So um, we have to first establish what are we talking about. What are we talking about during a pregnancy loss, during that, that word miscarriage? What is that? Did we lose pregnancy tissue or did we lose someone? And it's that we lost someone. That's why this question, especially when you read that second part where they know I'm their mom and every woman who's carried a child, you're kind of feeling that, that pull, that natural pull. And you know what that is to carry a child. Um, so intrinsically, we know the value of that child. And it's based in scripture as well. Um, and I'm not going to give you the full rundown on that, but I'll point you to, I did a sermon on this uh, during our Respect Life series. So just go online and find that. I was back in January, a whole series on respecting life. Um, and then I talked about the value of the preborn. But our bottom line for that sermon and our scriptural uh, base for that was in Psalm 139. It says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So during a miscarriage, we're talking about a mom losing a child. A mom losing a child. So we for sure know the value and the care and the love that God has for that child. So that begs our next question. What do they go to heaven? And that's a really complicated theological question there. So, but could they go to heaven? How could they go to heaven if they never knew who Jesus was, never had the opportunity to learn about him? You know, if the way to heaven is through knowing God and knowing who he is and who his son is, well then, then how could they go to heaven? Even babies who pass away, right? Or young children. What's our answer for that? So I'm going to uh, do something similar that Eric did. I'm going to give you our stance as a denomination, and then I'm going to give you some scripture to back that up. And if you're like me in the room uh, a couple years ago when I was new to the Church of the Nazarene, I wanted to know everything there was to know about why they believed what they believed. And you can go online and you can find the Church of the Nazarene manual, and I read that thing. <laughs> I wanted to know all the stances and why, and there's all the scripture sites. So although I probably similarly can't give you the full rundown on that, I encourage you to go online and find that. So we're just going to read uh, exactly our stance on that and then just a few scriptures for it. Um, and it's in our manual, the Articles of Faith, and the sixth article of faith is atonement. And so it says, we believe that Jesus Christ, by his sufferings, by the shedding of his blood, and by his death on the cross, made a full atonement for all human sin, and that by this atonement is the only ground of salvation, and that this is sufficient for every individual of Adam's race. Here's the answer to the question. The atonement is graciously efficacious for the salvation of those incapable of moral responsibility and for the children in innocency. So his atonement, his gift that he gave us on the cross, it is powerful enough. It is full of grace enough to cover even children in innocency. And that would be that age of accountability or that age of responsibility. And no, there's not an answer or a hard line in the sand of what that age is. Right? Is it 5? Is it 2? Is it 13? There are lots of different beliefs that maybe it's around something in Jewish culture, around 13 years old. There's no exact line on that in scripture. But what we do know, church, is that God is a just God. He is a righteous God, and he's going to make that decision, and it's going to be the right one. Amen. I like the notes. I'm using my phone, but it just canceled me out. <laughs> okay, so, and that, again, that point is not so much to focus on the fact that the child is innocent, because then we start wrestling with this 
concept of original sin. It's that God's gift and grace is powerful enough. And so where do we see these things in Scripture? Would be our question. It's not just about our thoughts and feelings. Of course, we want to see our children in heaven. It's about what do we see in Scripture, and it points to that as well. Um, so we see in the New Testament, very popular one, we've got uh, the disciples trying to shoo away children from Jesus' teaching, right? And then Jesus uh, rebuking his disciples and saying, no, let the children come to me. And so Jesus always accepts children. And he indicated that. It was uh, Matthew 19, verse 14. But Jesus said to them, let the little children come to me and do not stop them, for it is such as these the kingdom of heaven belongs. I mean, that one's pretty clear, right? I've got two more for you and then we'll wrap this up. In the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, verse 23, King David loses his young son. And King David said, he cannot come to me, but I can go to him. He knows that he will see his young son who he lost in heaven. In another Old Testament verse, uh, when God refused to let the disobedient Israelites into the promised land due to their unbelief, uh, God does not, however, hold the children responsible for what the parents have done. So we've got, God says in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, verse 39, Also your infants, who you thought would die on the way, and your children, who as yet do not know good from bad, will go there. I will give them the land, and they will possess it. Uh, so we see in Scripture this affirmation that there is um, a sort of age of accountability or age of responsibility. Um, so that was the answer to the first part, and we've got a second part there. Well, they know that I'm their mom, and I just think that that's beautiful. I think that all moms who have been through that, they want to know that too. And, and any parent who's lost a child, I mean, this really talks about just relationships in heaven, right? It's a broader question of what are our relationships like in heaven? Is my spouse going to, am I going to know this person? Is my husband or my wife? Are my kids going to want to hug me and call me mom or call me dad? Uh, what does that look like? And so we've got kind of two ways to think about that afterlife and two, two ways to think about heaven. And I think the first way is, what's going to be our main focus when we get to heaven? God, you're going to see Jesus. You're going to see his face. It's going to be the most brilliant, beautiful sight you have ever seen. I have a feeling that our attention is not going to want to go anywhere else. And that's perfect. It's perfection. And we're going to want to worship him forever. That would be focus number one. On the other hand, you got to think about the way God designed us and the way God designed us to, to have relationships. And you have to think about just even all the scripture that points to how important relationships are to God. He didn't create this world where we have moms and dads and husbands and wives and close friends for nothing. In fact, lots of scripture is, is spent spending time on that, that we would know generations from now the genealogy. How many pages of that do we think? I think there are you know, some important uh, key focuses on who's related to who and these relationships. And especially even just childbearing, right? He could have designed it any old way. He designed it for you, your child, and your body. And not for two seconds, right, ladies? No, I want to do that. Wow! That is, that is powerful. And I think he designed it that way on purpose. So, so to also call these relationships that we're having with each other meaningless so that they go away, I'm not sure that's true either. And that's my fancy way of saying, I don't think we know. And there's no scripture that says, yeah, when we get to heaven, this is going to be your husband, this is going to be your dad, and you're all going to know each other. But that's not there. But ultimately, like with the first part of the question, 
do know his. God is just. He is righteous. And what he says goes, right? And that we love him and that his answers and his ways are right. And the feeling that when we get to heaven, we're not going to be going to a complaint department, right? Like, hey, my kid did not run up and hug me when I got here. Could you do something about the lighting? Like, I think we're going to be fine with it when we get there. And we're going to absolutely love the decisions that God made and the relationships that we have when we're there. Um, and so that's my answer to that. Uh, thank you, Pastor Eric, for that excellent answer to your question and allowing me to answer something that I'm so passionate about. Um, we can have those. 
We can disagree with people and use social media in a way to show an example of civility. And then number three, um, we should use discretion when posting online. I truly believe this. This is more, this is definitely more of a me thing because I don't trust the top of the line anyways. But we should use discretion when posting online. And I'm going to give you an analogy for this. But when it comes to, um, when I work with our staff, or when I work with our leaders, when there are times that we have a disagreement, which believe it or not happens, there's times where, like, Frank has to come to me about something that, that we're disagreeing about. Um, I refuse to text anyone disagreements at this point. If someone's mad at me, they should be a long text, I don't text back. I always say, let's talk about it. Can I call you? Or can we meet and talk about this? Here's why I do that. You have to look at me in the face when you tell me this stuff. Because online, it's so easy because here's what happens when you go online. You feel like you're anonymous when you're not. You feel like you don't have to, if I say something in the show, I have to see how she responds. Online, if I send an email to her, I don't have to see how she responds. And in my head, I'm like, it feels, it's a lot easier to do that, and we do that. So when it comes to staff and leaders, I will not have hard conversations with anybody over text or anything. Would it be easier to write the whole thing out? Yeah, it would be a lot easier. But I want to show them respect, and I want them to show me enough respect that we can see each other face to face and talk about it. So with that, that's what I kind of go with when it comes to social media, when it comes to political posts as well, is I believe as a follower of Jesus, we should be posting respectfully. We should be respectfully posting. Um, so here's what I would say, if you're one of those people that posts a lot, um, I would just say, be careful, okay? You, you, be careful. Be careful how you post, be careful how you word it. Understand that there are other people with other experiences, with other dynamics that are going to look at it, and it might cause arguments. If you want to open a discussion, that's fine. But be careful how you post it, how you accuse other people of stuff. That's what I would say to you. If you're one of those people that see that person post, and you jump all over it, I would say to you, be careful, okay? Because you might be fueling it even more, okay? So we need to be careful how we do this. Here's what I truly believe, and I will be on next question. I think the silliest thing that we as followers of Jesus can do is create division with each other over political Facebook posts and political Instagram posts. I believe it's the dumbest thing we can do. So, I would say to you, be careful. Use civility, let's do it in a way that we can disagree with each other and still be in the same family, right? So, that's my answer. Alright, next question. Why do we pray if God is sovereign, in control, all-knowing? I like this question. Um, and here's how I normally when people ask this question, how to respond. Why, why would we pray if God is not sovereign? What would be the point? So if God is not sovereign, he doesn't is in control, then he can't do things about it. So why would we pray then? No point in praying if he's not sovereign. So I think one thing we understand is one reason we pray is because he is sovereign. Uh, another reason we pray is because God commands us to. Yeah, God's in control and could he do, could he work without you praying, of course. But he commands us to. First Thessalonians chapter 5, 6, and 3, he says this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So, I also believe that prayer is an expression of relationships. I believe that when we pray, we're showing that we have a relationship with God. J.C. Wilde says breathing, um, that when we breathe, it shows we're alive. When we pray, it shows that we're spiritually alive. I really believe that. I believe that. So, I believe that, and the last reason why I believe we should pray, even though God is in control and God is sovereign, is that over and over in Scripture, example after example says and shows that God works through prayers. 
God can work immediately, right? God doesn't need us to pray. He can just move if He wants to and do what He wants. But there are example after example after example in the Bible of God waiting for someone to pray and then moving. Not because He needs to, but because He's inviting us into relationship. Um, if you know the story of Moses and the ten plagues, every plague was done after God, after Moses prayed. God didn't need Moses to pray or for the rain falls, right? But He wanted Moses to pray. He won't respond after the prayer. Um, in Isaiah, King Hezekiah um, was healed after Isaiah prayed to God first. Daniel was um, prayed for wisdom and was saved after he prayed for wisdom. Uh, we have Elijah who prayed that God would blind the other army that they were about to fight, and God did. God didn't need Elijah's prayer, but he invites it, and he responded after the prayer. And then we have Peter who was in prison, and his church was praying for Peter to be released from prison. God moved so quickly that while they were praying, he walked in the door. It's like, oh, that was fascinating. 20 minutes went by, you're already released. God constantly responds after someone prays first. So why should we pray? Because God is, God is sovereign. God commands us to do it. And it shows that we have a relationship with God. Alright, two more questions. Let's go through these pretty quick because I know we have a good guy to get to. Next one. Do you pick your nose? <laughs> yes. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> Be honest, I'm not going to lie to you guys, okay? And you do. <laughs> Why does Jesus speak in vague phrases rather than speaking plainly? Why do people actually have to ask that he speak to them plainly? It doesn't seem loving, but rather like someone who wants to play games. Um, let me explain to you what Jesus always did. Jesus, whenever he would ask Jesus a question, he would most of the time respond with a parable. A parable was a, a story that he told for heavenly purposes. Um, so you would say to Jesus, like, what's two plus two? And he'd go, well, there was a mom bear, big, a big bear. It's like, you can't say this question. You always did that. And here's the funny. Uh, the disciples got sick of it, too. The disciples were like, why do you always have to give us a story? So the disciples went and said, Jesus, why don't you just talk plainly to us? Why do you keep telling us stories? So Jesus literally answers this question. Because the disciples, you think, were frustrated. The disciples, every time someone asked, they, they told this long story. It's like, what is he talking about? So the disciples say, Jesus, why do you do this? And so Jesus answered it, so I figured we should see what Jesus says about this. Um, this is Jesus talking. Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will will be given more. And they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Through no seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Here's what Jesus is saying here. He's making it pretty clear. He makes it clear that people that understand and grasp the meaning of his parables understand his kingdom more compared to people that don't. I think of it this way. Um, there's sometimes I'll see like a movie that everyone told me is amazing. And I'll watch this movie and I leave the movie and go, man, that was just so confusing. I don't get it at all. And in order for me to fully appreciate the movie, I would have to do some research, I would have to think more, I would have to understand what the director was doing. And the people that do that understand that movie in a great way. But I don't care enough, so I don't do it. And for these stories that Jesus told, these parables, he says, listen, people that want to understand this story, that know, want to know the kingdom better, they're going to learn what this story means. They're going to look deeper. People that are just here for all the miracles, because people kept seeing miracles, right? People that are just here for the show, they're just going to go, whatever. I don't care, because they're not really work to follow. They want to follow for the easy part, or follow for the miracles. They don't want to actually learn more. When Jesus told parables, 
He put the pressure on us, the listeners. That's what he did. Put the pressure on us that either we need to be open our spiritual ears, our spiritual eyes to understand and be enlightened, or we miss out. That's what he was doing. And here's what I love about parables. It's stories. Parables are easy to remember. Parables are rich in symbolism. So much symbolism in them. Parables are, have commonality between all of us, and parables will help you understand more about God and His love. Let me give you some examples. Um, Jesus could have told us, hey, you should have strong faith. Okay? Have strong faith. Or, he could tell a story about a house being built on sand, or a house being built on rock. We see this imagery of this house coming down because the sand is not the right foundation. We learn so much more than just, hey, have strong faith. Um, Jesus could tell us to be nice to people. Or he could give us a story of a good Samaritan. A person who comes and sees someone that's hurting, dying on the road, who risks his life in order to help them. Takes, takes this person to an inn and says, whenever it costs to fix this person, that, that's what I'm going to do. So you can say, hey, be nice. You can say, listen to the story about the good Samaritan. That's what he can do. Uh, Jesus can say, hey, you should read your Bible. Pray. That's good this one. Do that. And that'd be fine. That'd be right. We'd all be on board with that. Or, Jesus could, could give a story about someone planting seeds. And depending on the soil, whether it will grow, the seed might be there, but the soil's not right. And it's not going to grow correctly. We see this beautiful imagery of seeds and planting it, and how that's what our life is when we start looking more to the wisdom. We start reading our Bibles. We can do that as well. Jesus can say, hey, I love you. And that's right. Or, he tells a story of a prodigal son who ran from his father, who did the worst thing possible for father, who spent all of his father's inheritance on wild living, who went and partied way too much, and eventually realized he had nothing left and said, I'm going to come back and beg my father, I'm going to be his servant because I can't be his son anymore. I burned after him, I can't do it anymore. And he comes back, and what does the dad do? He runs from his porch, grabs his son, and throws a party for the most undeserving son possible. So yeah, love you works. But I like to serve a lot of son a little better. Why does Jesus do this? It's not to trick us. It's so that we can try to understand more fully the grace that he gives us. Simple words won't do it. Even these stories only get a percentage of it. We can't fully comprehend it. But when I read these stories, and you know this too, when you read stories or hear stories, it emotionally connects to you. I believe that Jesus and God love you so much that he invites your questions. And he wants to show you stories, he wants to show you how he, through how he heals, what he does for you, that he loves you. So, as we close out the series and the worship is going to play um, our, our theme song, what I want to do, I want to pray for you. Um, and then we're going to sing this song and we're going to have a fun cookout. Sound good, you guys? Um, if you have any other questions, Again, if I answer your question, I'm going to But if any more come out and you want to ask me or if you want to meet with me, I'd love to do it. Come see me after you cook out a set of time, okay? So I, I want you to feel like this is a place where you can come with your questions. And even if some of the answers we gave you didn't like, I, I want you to feel like this is a place where you can wrestle with that. And we can wrestle with that together because when we ask these questions, it shows that we love God and we want to pursue. So, let me pray for you guys to sing the song. We'll eat some great food, okay? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for loving us so much that you invite us to have a relationship with you. You 
invite us to ask us, ask you more questions, and you invite us to wrestle for truth. God, thank you that you are the God of truth, that you're not scared of our questions. You want us to ask them because then, and only then, will we be able to have a more intimate relationship with you. Thank you that God pours grace on us, that even though we don't deserve it, we're like a prodigal son, that you still love us anyways. Dear God, thank you for being a God like that. We give you this day, we just give you this time we're going to have afterwards, we some great food. Thank you for being a God that uh, deserves our worship. We just pray that we just add this next time. We just